Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Narragansett, Rhode Island, in an actual home. And I say that because for some of you listening, you've been on this RV adventure with me and my family over the last 10 months. We covered 12,000 miles, 33 states, uh, and actually put our kids into school on May 6th for their first day of school. So uh, the trip is over, but a new journey is beginning. It has been great to have more predictable Wi-Fi, running water, and electricity at all times. And I'm really excited uh, to welcome today's uh, guest, Amy Noah, Vice President and Chief Advancement Officer for the University of Oklahoma Foundation. Welcome, Amy. Hello, it's good to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, uh, Amy, one of her real claims uh, to fame is that she uh, led the $2.5 billion capital campaign at Purdue. Uh, and I just have to call that out right away because it's the best named capital campaign in history. It was called Ever True. Uh, and uh, I had the opportunity of visiting Purdue when that campaign was going on. And it felt like there was a real welcoming committee because Ever True was just written all over the campus. And I did go on to learn um, that uh, Ever True uh, at Purdue is one of the uh, lyrics uh, in the school fight song. Uh, and it is also the name of Brown's fight song, Ever True to Brown, which is where our company's name came from. So that was just a fun uh, coincidence. And Amy, if I recall, your license plate even read Ever True. It did. It did. I, I'll always claim that of all the visits you might have ever made, Brent, we were the only place that could provide you a complete wrapped bus with the words Ever True on it. Um, but yeah, we had a lot of fun with it. It was special and unique to our campus, like you described in the case of Brown, because of the fight song connection. Well, we're going to uh, dive into that, but I want to uh, rewind a bit first. And one of my favorite questions for my guests um, has been just to learn a little bit about your own journey uh, to higher education, because I think so many of us who end up in the advancement space, it's somehow connected to our own college decision, experiences that we had as students and so forth. And so take me back to junior year of high school, uh, Amy, who was that person? What was she into? And uh, did you know that you wanted to attend Purdue? Um, yeah, I had an interest in Purdue uh, for a variety of reasons. The town that I was from in Indiana, many of my classmates had an interest in IU. Um, and there was always that fun school rivalry. But um, for me, it was really just about an opportunity to distance myself from home a little bit and to explore uh, a campus and a part of the state that I wasn't familiar with. So that was why I decided on Purdue as an undergraduate. And, and really it wasn't about my junior and senior year of high school when I made that decision. When my family visited with at Purdue, um, I, my dad was a diehard IU fan. So I remember him saying that it was gonna pain him greatly to have to send checks to Purdue University, but he did it for many years, so. <laughs> and, uh... And so it felt like a little bit of, of getting away from home, even though you're staying in state. Uh, did you love it right away when you got there? Did it take some time to get used to? I mean, what was your student experience like? Um, it, yes, I absolutely loved it. Um, like a lot of incoming freshmen, I lived in a dorm, made some really deep and, and meaningful relationships uh, with people who I've stayed in touch with ironically since um, all that time ago. Um, but yeah, it was just a special place. There was a real sense of community. And even though there were, you know, at that time, probably 30, 35,000 students on campus, it never felt big. It was just, it was a place that even when you went to class, you would always see people you knew, you would always make connections and those connections carried through in your years uh, of study. And so, yeah, it felt comfortable to me from the very beginning. 
And um, were there any, uh, did you have clarity around what you wanted to study? I mean, rarely uh, do folks uh, sign up freshman year thinking they want to be a chief advancement officer someday, but uh, did you have any exposure to the philanthropy uh, world um, as you started the experience? Um, not a lot. I did. I did have student uh, classmates and friends who worked at the call center, the student call center. I myself did not, but I did have them uh, in my life at that time. And many of them talked about their experience. And I did think it was super interesting uh, to hear them talk about it. And I will suggest that that's probably where I really first started thinking about philanthropy, not because of my own personal connections, but because of my classmates who were working at the call center at Purdue. So how did your friends describe that, actually? I'm curious to know kind of what their pitch was uh, to you, if it was a pitch or if it was more just kind of friends catching up and passing. Um, you know, I specifically remember two examples. Um, I had a, a actually a roommate uh, who was involved with the call center at Purdue at the time, and um she was so taken back by the fact that she was talking to people ac across the country every night who had had incredible past and had done really interesting things and that they were giving back to Purdue. She just said, I just didn't know people would do that. You know, so it was probably my first introduction to, um, to the higher ed space of philanthropy. I certainly was familiar with it through my own uh, childhood and people who, you know, give to their church or give to medical causes or those kinds of things. I certainly had that familiarity, but that was the first example. And then um, the second example was I had a classmate um, and she, we weren't close friends, but we were close enough that we were involved in a couple of group projects. And she actually uh, shared with all of us that um, she had talked with an individual the evening before who had named a, one of the large lecture uh, halls that we sat in. And so she said, did you guys ever notice the name on the front of the lecture hall? And most of us said no. And she said, well, I have to tell you, I talked to that person last night. There's a real person. And so she really kind of brought that story alive. And um, it really struck me. And uh, she, so, so to, to be clear, she spoke to the donor in the context of working at a call center. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do we feel about that as uh, I mean, is that is that OK? Like, do we let the building naming donors just get called in the Leibniz list or how, how does that work? Well, um, so I'm going to out myself now. I remember specifically her talking about that. Fast forward, I went, I left, I graduated, went and did some work, came back and was working in um, fundraising at Purdue. And I couldn't quite remember the name of that lecture hall. To be honest, I couldn't. So I went and uh, walked over one day on my lunch and looked it up. And I thought, I'm going to look in the system and look this individual up. So there was a note in the contact reports, believe it or not, there was a note that this individual had asked specifically not to be removed from the call center numbers because he loved hearing from young people. Wow. And he always, I guess he had a habit, it, he, he didn't need to be called often. And I think there was some timeline in which he suggested how frequent he would be called, but he always used his credit card because student callers would get a bonus if they could get the gift on a credit card. And he always gave $1,000 to any of the student callers. I love it. I love it. Good, uh, good follow up. The fact that you uh, track that down is uh, impressive. And so you, you already kind of hinted at uh, immediately after college. I'm actually I'm not familiar with what you did um, right right after school before you got into the advancement realm. Sure. I went to work in the industry. So um, I was working at uh, a large corporation, TRW. 
uh, it was local. It was within the Lafayette, West Lafayette community. And I was working in uh, purchasing, so contract negotiation and a lot mm. of relationship piece of work there. So I did that for about six years after I graduated. And when did you start thinking about getting back to either Purdue specifically or higher education or fundraising? I mean, how did it get on your radar? Yeah. Well, like most college towns, you can't live in Lafayette or West Lafayette and not feel like there's this constant reminder of this really great thing happening over here at this university. And so I certainly didn't ever lose sight of like, wow, it would be really wonderful and full circle to have an opportunity to work at Purdue. But what happened is um, Martin Jiski arrived on campus in July of 2000 and quickly launched a capital campaign. And it was in the paper, it was on the news, it was in everywhere that you turned and there was an incredible marketing effort around that, that initiative. And so I had a couple of friends that worked at the university at the time and they reached out and they said, here's your chance, you really ought to do it. And so I, I tiptoed into it and look what happened. <laughs> and when you think about those early days sort of moving from industry, I mean, obviously in a negotiation uh, sort of capacity and there's a lot of negotiation involved in the fundraising realm, but did it feel like an immediate, you know, this is my calling, um, I, I'm going to be doing this for, you know, the, the rest of my career or, or um, did it take a while to just hit your stride? You know, I guess it's kind of a little of both, to be honest, Brent. So I, um, I selected uh, corporate fundraising very deliberately because I thought that would be a more natural transition. And I was very familiar with um, large corporations and sort of the structure of such. So I did start in that space, but I, you know, the flip of it is there's a lot to learn in this profession, like most professions, but um, there's a lot to learn and a lot to um, really experience and a lot to perfect. And so in the beginning, I, it was hard. It was really hard. And I questioned whether I would be successful. And I, I would like to believe there's probably not a fundraiser alive that wouldn't have said the same thing about themselves. You know, you do question, can I do this work? Can I do this year after year? Can I raise the kinds of dollars that are being expected? And can I be successful? So it was hard, um, but yet it always just felt very rewarding. And it felt very natural to me to be at a place that I had graduated than to be asking people to provide support. So it was a natural, but it was hard. I don't want to under underscore the, the effort that it took to learn how to be a good fundraiser and to really um, build uh, a skill set that could carry me forward. And so if you could go back in time and sit that Amy down and say, hey, look, we're just going to cut to the chase here. There's like one, two or three things you really should know right away. What what would those, I don't know, lessons or um, maybe you just needed to go through the trials and tribulations and do the work, but are there any generalizable themes that you feel like you would have benefited to know earlier in your career? Um, you know, to some extent, I think always first and foremost is to be a good listener. Um, and that's not always something people learn. I think people get better at it or sometimes get worse at it, <laughs> but I think it's important to be a good listener always in, in the work that we do. Um, the other thing that I think I hadn't given thought to, but it certainly became very critical and very important to me when I thought about what it was going to take to be successful was my ability to anticipate. Um, so when I was in conversations with people and I was trying to be 
attentive and listen and pick up on all those clues and all those hints that might lead to something more significant in, in the relationship or in, in the path of philanthropy. There was also a, a really healthy dosage of, you know, you need to be able to anticipate either what people are thinking or what people might think or what might move this relationship forward. And I think being able to really get better in that space allowed me an opportunity to be more successful. As you think about those early years, and I'm sure we have, you know, many early career fundraisers listening who love hearing from folks uh, like like you that have have developed uh, such a strong track record and have had all the highs and lows that go along with it. Were there moments early on that either strike you as being really challenging or demoralizing or on the other hand, just early wins or victories that, um, I don't know, made you more excited about the longer term prospects? Um, You know, I'll say something really interesting about the profession and like a lot of um, a lot of professions, um, it's very hierarchical, you know, so I started as an entry level fundraiser and I remember walking into a room of, you know, 100 or 150 other fundraising professionals, not all fundraisers, but many. And I just it, it allowed some doubt to creep into my mind. It really kind of intimidated me. It worked against me a few times because I let it get in my head. And so I think to young people and to people that are just really starting out in the profession, I think the best thing you can really do, and I wish in hindsight I had been more um, deliberate about it, was rather than let that paint a, a, an idea or an impression for me, I, I think I would have probably been better served to just get back to my desk, just put my nose down and work really hard. Um, because the work, if you invest and if you do just all the right things, it will pay off in spades. And it's, it's just an incredible profession in which you can really define your own path and so I think I probably early on allowed a couple of those really successful fundraisers to, to get into some real estate in my head. And in hindsight, I probably should have just played my game and played it well and stayed the course. But fortunately, I mean, I, I, I had enough success that I was able to, to figure that out pretty quickly. And it did allow me later um, as my relationship changed and I, I became supervisor to some of, the, some of the individuals that I described or I became a peer, I felt a little more confident because I had the results and I could speak to that and the work allows you to do that. So what were some of the ingredients to generating the results? Uh, is, it, um, is it work ethic? Is it attitude? Is it some skill set development? confidence? I mean, what, what was it for you where you really started to feel like things clicked? Yeah. Well, I think this is absolutely a profession where if you're expecting somebody to tap you on the shoulder every day and tell you what to do, you're probably not going to be successful. Um, it's, it's just not designed like that. So I think work ethic is a big part of it, but, um, at the end of the day, I, I kind of built my strategy around two fundamental pieces. I knew early on that it was going to be hard for me to reach my dollar goals, and especially in those first 12 months. I thought I'm not going to be able to, to, to run out of the gate and reach that dollar goal because they were ambitious goals. And so what I decided to do is if the goal for making visits was X, I was going to make two times X um, because I felt like if I could defend my, my cause, I could at least say, you know, I might not have reached the dollar visit, but I made contact with a lot of people. And I think I've moved some relationships forward. And what that did was it paid off over the years because when I had made a lot more visits in those early years and then later, I had a lot of those relationships just based on history. 
And so I think that that is a place where people get all wrapped up around the number in our business. And of course, that's the part that people think about when they measure. But I think really it is about visits. It's It must be about getting yourself in front of as many people as you possibly can in a given period of time. And then, um, you know, the other piece about this, and I probably because of the place that I learned at, at Purdue in a large, um, a large institution with a couple of really successful colleges, I really focused on um, the people that nobody else was talking about. So what tends to happen in philanthropy and in, in large um, higher ed institutions is there's a, a handful of prospects that we all know, we all hear the names we talk about, their, their names are on buildings or they've named professorships. And I just decided, you know, we can all sit at the table and fight over getting a little bit more from those individuals and figure out what our space is. Or I would just identify people that nobody else was talking to. And I didn't feel crowded in my relationship with those individuals. And I could just own it. And I could present a united front to them because they really hadn't been um, contacted by other individuals. And so I really did a lot of discovery work. And I'm glad I did. It was the funnest of times. And it really did pay off. And um, those are the relationships that many years later, um, I would hear from individuals and they would say, hey, I looked and you're still at Purdue, so I thought I would call you. And so I think there's a lot to be said for that, and especially for people who are just getting started in the field. So, and, and it seems like those two strategies go hand in hand. One, let's identify essentially the prospects that are um, sort of maybe hidden in plain sight in certain regards, but just not getting the same level of attention. And two, let's get a lot of shots on goal. Let's just get the conversations. Let's do the visits. And I guess the third piece though, was because you were able to really have such a strong tenure at one institution that, you know, in a sector where there is so much turnover, as time went on, you started getting inbounds from some of those same people where maybe it took years for them to get to a spot where they wanted to step up, um, you know, at, at that level. And so it's, it sounds like that was a part of the success as well. Absolutely. Um, I definitely think, um, you know, and this is what, um, it's not, I'm not gonna say it's a great trouble for me, but it certainly is something that I'm, I'm struck by in the profession. There's a lot of movement. Um, you know, people get distracted by what's shiny and bright, and that could be in a bigger title or just a little bit more money. And I remind people, um, every time you take a new assignment, you're starting over. I mean, you're starting with zero relationships and you have to build those. And so I tend to appreciate those individuals who really um, stay within an organization or stay placed within a spot within the organization to really, even though it would have been easier or more exciting or maybe more attractive at times to take a different position, I think there's some real value. It's certainly important to our external stakeholders. And if we all want to say, and if we mean it, that we do this work because of the donors, and I hope that most people can say that, um, it's better for them when you stay put. <laughs> they don't like that revolving door. They don't like calling the office and somebody new answering. They build a relationship with you and they see you as the face of the institution. And so I think the stability that you bring when you stay rooted in an assignment, um, it has amazing uh, ripple effect. And so I'm a, I'm a fan of that, although I know it doesn't happen as much as it could. Um, and maybe I'm a fan of that because I, I had 18 years at one place, but uh, right. nonetheless, I am a fan. <laughs> so just back to your two pillars for one moment, identify quality prospects that aren't getting the attention that they should, and then do a ton of visits. Like those are pretty 
sound strategies, why would you, uh, why isn't that just the standard? Why, why might somebody even debate that that, um, or, or disagree that with that recommendation? Um, well, in the case of identifying your own prospects, I think um, to some people, it can be a little daunting to imagine that, okay, I'm going to start this relationship from ground zero. So you weren't afraid of the cold lead. I mean, you know, maybe not ice cold, but not like they were a known, yeah. uh, you know, philanthropic supporter at a, at a major gift level, let's say. No, I actually prefer those individuals when you look in the system and there were no contact reports. Those were my favorite. Um, I love it. Because you really, you weren't going to have to call and ask a colleague for permission to go make a visit or to get an ask in front of somebody. Um, chances are you were going to be one of the first people to talk to those individuals about the institution, the first point of connection that they may have had in many years. And so I found them easier to get visits with people like that. Um, in fact, I, I always do believe that. And maybe that um, I'd, I'd love to know if there's research on this and I should probably uh, read more about it. But um, I have to believe that the people that don't hear from the institution are much more responsive to a first visit as opposed to the people that hear pretty consistently from a, a cast of different development officers and everybody wanting an appointment. I think they might feel a little mm -hmm. abused by that. And so I tend to believe that those individuals who haven't, and I heard that often when I would write to somebody and say, hey, I'm going to be in Seattle, um, would love to visit with you, hear what your time has been since you left the university, would you be open to it? And it was, I'd say probably at least almost half of the time people would say, you yeah, know, you're the first person that's ever reached out to me from Purdue. I'm really excited to hear from you. Love to have a visit. Love it. Well, you don't have uh, an 18 year uh, experience and all those visits without having some interesting stories along the way. Is it true that one time somebody delivered horses to you at your building, just showed up ready to gift horses? Yes, actually. Um, a gentleman I knew, he was from Illinois, wonderful, wonderful person. I had been in communication with him about a gift, just probably four or five, we had probably met four or five times. And he called me and said, I'm out front. Can you come out front? And I said, how are you out front? Because there really wasn't a place to park in front of our building. It was really just a pull in for the buses. And so he said, well, I need you to hurry because I'm out front. And I was like, okay, that's odd because the buses are not too patient with people who pull in. So I go down there and he's down there with a huge horse trailer. And I said, oh, wow, what are you doing? And he was like, well, I'm here to make a gift. So I thought he meant write a check. And I said, oh, okay. Well, where, how do you want to, you know, how do you want to handle what are you thinking? And he goes, well, it's that. And he pointed and I was like, it's what? And it, there was, you know, I don't know, six, eight horses. And he said, those are some of my finest. And I said, I thought he was kidding. And I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, we have a vet school, right? And I said, yes, because we treat sick animals, but we don't accept gifts of animals. And he said, well, they're worth a lot of money. And I said, I trust you but we're not in the business of acquiring livestock. And so we had to work through that a little bit and he came to understand it, but it turned out he was in a life event and he was trying to liquidate some things kind of quickly. And so I said, you know, I think you're probably a little emotional right now. Let's kind of step back and think about what's the right thing for you. So um, pretty funny though. I mean, he, he, his heart was in the right place. He meant well, 
Um, in his mind, he had connected Purdue and a vet school, and he thought that this would be something we would want. And I was like, well, we don't have a pasture for those, and we certainly can't race those. And so I'm not sure what body they would have. So, I mean, have you ever thought of just having a drive through window right there at the uh, foundation? Exactly. Uh, and then I read the other, um, you'd shared one time that you met with an angry donor who refused to give because of a parking ticket. Yeah. But you stuck with him? We did. Um, he, yeah, it's funny, he agreed to the visit and was pretty warm in the email mm. communication. So I went into it thinking it was going to be a, a good visit. I'm not going to say that I thought it was going to be off the charts, but I thought it would be good. And as soon as I got there, he was so angry. And um, he had the parking ticket. He actually put it on the desk and he said, you know, can you believe this? And so what had happened is... Um, I later learned um, because he had the parking ticket, they had encumbered his diploma at the end. So his parents came back. If, if, if he told the story and if I understood it all correctly, his parents came back to graduation to see him graduate and he walked across stage, but he didn't get a diploma because of the parking ticket. He earned it and he had the credits, but the university was going to withhold the diploma. And so he had to explain that to his dad on the way home. And so he was furious. So his dad, of course, came back and tried to rectify it and did and, and made it right with the university. But to this gentleman, he was embarrassed that he had to tell his father and he was embarrassed that his father had to pay this $30 parking ticket. And he just thought it was ridiculous. And so he had harbored all this ill will for many, many years. And so he went off on you know quite a rant. We talked about it. Um, and he, I finally just asked him, I said, would you prefer I leave? And he said, yeah, I think I would. And I said, okay. So I left and um, I followed up with him. I did not write him an email purposely because I didn't want to get into a dialogue. I hand wrote him a note. And I said that I really appreciated him sharing his concerns. And most importantly, I understood that it was, it had to be very embarrassing for him. And for that, I was sorry, um, but that I hoped we would stay in touch. And so I wrote to him about a year later in an email and said, you know, I'm going to be back in Boston. Would you be open to a visit? And he said, you really want to see me again? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, what if I go down that same path? And I said, well, then that'll be your choice. So when I got there, he was still, he mentioned it, but he was a little past it. And then ultimately he did make a significant gift. I am most surprised that you decided to try for the second visit. <laughs> he was a what? nice guy. What, nice but guy. you... I mean, is, isn't it fair to say most folks would have just disqualified and and maybe written written him off, or was there something where you felt like it really was worth it, or are you just a glutton for punishment? Because I mean, how many times do you, have you said, "Would you like me to leave?" and they say yes? Um, it's kind of silly, but I remember when I left and I got my car, I thought, "Well, I'm going to give him some time to cool off." but I am going to try to visit him again because I knew I would be back in Boston. The really, the biggest reason is because when I said, would you like for me to leave? And he said, yes. I said, I'm happy to do that. And he said, well, I do appreciate that you listened to me today. And I thought to myself, you know, he's not really that hard of an individual. I mean, he just had to be heard. So there was something about his tone and the way he said it. And he literally stood up and walked me to the door and he said, goodbye. And in my mind, I thought, you know, if he would have just sat there or he would have slammed the door or any of those things, I would have probably 
probably maybe he thought differently, but it was just that he said, I really appreciate you listen. So in my mind, I took that as his sign that there was some closure for him. Maybe all bad, you know, he did. I, I, I think it's important to note that when he did eventually tell me he was going to make a gift, he said, it's probably not as big as you think it should be, but it's going to be the gift that I feel comfortable doing. He said, I'm going to make a significant gift. It's significant by my standards. And it was a significant gift. He said, now I want to ask you something and I need you to be honest. I would like to create a fund for other students who have parking tickets that aren't paid. And he asked if the university would be open to that. I said, well, not exactly. And you can imagine lots of reasons why. But I said, well, what if we just direct it to the emergency fund that's available at the university? And that helps for a variety of reasons. Parking tickets could be one of them. But it's really more people that students who have a crisis. And I said, wouldn't that feel maybe like a better way to use your money? And he said, yeah, I could accept that. So. Wow. I love that uh, story. And, you know, it, it almost sounds like, you know, you reference the gentleman with the horse trailer and, and, and this individual who just needed to be heard. I mean, it almost sounds like part of the job is therapist. I don't know if you ever felt that way, but. Um, probably more with my staff, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I think when you, if you, if you find yourself in uh, the profession and you manage people, um, you have to imagine that fundraisers collectively are um, they're very sensitive. They're very um, compassionate uh, they care deeply. They're very much people pleasers. And so I probably uh, felt a little bit more like um, I offered support in, in more of a therapy way for some of the fundraisers that I worked with. Well, let's talk about that because ultimately you had the opportunity to go from advancement, advancement newcomer to, uh, you know, successful fundraiser to leader of a, of a big organization. And uh, you know, take me back to maybe some of those early moments when you were named vice president at uh, Purdue. And, you know, uh, I've been in your all staff meetings. That was a big group. And I mean, were you feeling confident, overwhelmed? I mean, what was the sort of mix of emotions when you um, stepped in to take over the, the campaign? Um, you know, I recall very, very clearly what April 1st, 2013 felt like. Um, it was a really interesting day, but it was the day that I was appointed interim vice president at Purdue. And um, I had probably next to no answers for what we were going to do or what needed to be done because I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't seen myself in that capacity. It, it happened very suddenly. Um, and so it, it, it put me in a position where I was standing within a couple hours in front of, you know, 150 people to let them know that I had been asked to take this assignment. And um, and I just was honest with them. I said, you know, look, there's a lot of work to do. We're going to do really great things. I'm confident. I believe all of you are the right people for all the right reasons, but I don't have a recipe. I don't know exactly what this is going to look and feel like. So I need you to be patient and I need you to be kind. Um, and I need you to understand that I'm going to ask a lot of you and um, I'll hopefully give as much to you as you give. Um, and so I just remember at the end of those words, I was standing there staring at this room full of people feeling probably pretty overwhelmed. And um, one of my colleagues um, stood up and said, thank you for taking this assignment. And I was so struck by uh, her words. I, um, she's since retired from Purdue. She's somebody I still stay in touch with. But I was really touched by the fact that she was thanking me 
Um, it hadn't occurred to me that anyone would, would think that was an appropriate response, but it certainly was from her heart. And I could tell that when she spoke it. And it was just to me, honestly, it was the it was the perfect storm because I was going to get to work with people I knew, uh, people who had been seated at tables with me in many, many, many conversations who I'd seen close gifts, I'd seen be successful and um, to get to be um, involved with people at that level is incredible in and of itself. But then to get to say that I get to lead a team like that, it was it was a blessing. I mean, I'll be forever grateful uh, and not just because it's the ever true, ever grateful uh, piece of the fight song. But I, I, Purdue is a place that gave me many blessings and um, I am incredibly grateful for the opportunity and for the people that I worked with. I worked with, I would absolutely say some of the best people in the country. Well, we do have many listeners to this podcast who have aspirations to grow into leadership roles. And I think one of the things that you uniquely experienced was a lot of those 150 people who that day when you stood up uh, were now reporting to you in one way or another had been maybe people you had reported to or peers. And, and uh, you know, I'm curious to know kind of making that leap and if there were any lessons in sort of elevating into a leadership role where now you were the boss and and um, you know trying to balance some of those uh, pre-existing relationships um, if, if you will and sort of the blurry lines between friend and leader and peer and all of those things that maybe we all deal with I, I would think it'd be unique in your situation having started in a more junior role and and, and been able to ascend all the way up without leaving the institution and going somewhere else? Yeah, um, it's a great question, Brett. I'll, I'll say, um, I remember never had I found the statement to be so relevant or true, but you've heard the phrase, it's lonely at the top. <laughs> it's so true because uh, when you find yourself in a situation where you have a large team, where you have a team working for you, it's not appropriate that you blur the lines of friendship and or that you hang out with some of these people socially, or that you, you know, that, you know, it's the simple things like, okay, is it okay to be friends on Facebook with people that work for you? I mean, we all struggle with these questions, or we all wonder about these things, and what's the right or the wrong thing. I'm certain I cross some of those lines, um, because you do like the people that work with you. I, I'm not going to say I like them all equally, but gosh, I like them a lot. And in many cases, I thought I could see myself absolutely socializing with these individuals. They're fun. They're nice kind. Um, so it is a balance. I think there is a, an absolute balance. I think for me, um, and I think if you ask the people that work for me at Purdue, um, and I hope in, in some time the people that are, I'm working with here at OU will, will share the same. I think people will come to realize I'm, I'm a very, very, very transparent person. Um, I just have to believe that even if people don't want or can't take the truth, the truth is the best. It's easiest for me <laughs> and it's easiest for the world if we could live in a space where there's more truth. And I think that at the end of the day, to celebrate everything, we celebrated success at all levels within our organization. And it just felt good. Who doesn't want to be a part of a good celebration, right? And in our work, there's plenty of things that can really get you down and, um, and you can take personally and it's hard. It's very hard work. And so I think it's important to celebrate and to rejoice. And, um, you know, I, my team has heard me say this. I, I, 
I used to say this often, you know, we can all visit pity city, but we can't stay like no complaining, right? Like we can't keep complaining. So I'm just a more of a positive person. And I think that the more you can instill that in a culture, if you can create that kind of culture, I think it's just more successful for everyone. I am going to borrow. We can visit pity city, but we can't stay. I also feel like, I feel like that could be a decent country song. There's something there. Um, So you uh, just talked about transparency. What does that mean? And and I'm sure if I asked some of your former colleagues, they could probably give me some really clear examples. Um, but maybe for your you know newer colleagues uh, who you haven't had as much time to spend with yet, what does that mean? Because transparency, I think, is something that we can all say and aspire to. But in reality, it can be it can be tough. But it's uh, uh, you know, tough and tough and fair is an okay combo. I mean, what's an example of where you might consider yourself more transparent than other peers or other leaders that you've gotten to know over the years? Yeah. So when I accepted this assignment at Purdue, that's the, my final assignment at Purdue, um, I had watched, I had been um, obviously involved with others who had led and, and who were great. I'm not in any way disparaging or discrediting their work. But it was always interesting to me. It felt like there was this void of information as it related to our president. And, um, and I, you know, I know people think, you know, information is knowledge, is power. It's all those things, right? But I, um, so I would have regular meetings and or conversations with the president of the university. And um, they weren't all great. Of course, they're not going to be, you know. I mean, he's got a big job. I have a big job. We're trying to do really big things. And I just had a philosophy that, if it was relevant and it was important, even if the message wasn't great, I was going to share it. So when my team would get together once a month, I would give an update and it would be things like, you know, well, we went on this visit and this happened or that happened and this was good or this wasn't good or the president has has agreed that he's going to do this or he's not going to do this. And I just put it all out there Um, because I wanted people to, first of all, I wanted people to see how real the president was. He was a wonderful colleague and a wonderful partner to me. And I wanted people to understand that many people didn't have access to him or didn't have an opportunity to personalize him. So I wanted to be able to help fill that gap. And then I just wanted people to know what was really happening. And um, it was, there were times where I think it was more than they wanted or more than they could take or more than they felt comfortable with. But I think in the end, people grew to appreciate it and wanted it in the end. I love it. Um, When you think about the two and a half billion dollar campaign, favorite memory, top one or two, uh, just things that really stand out as uh, just being highlights of that experience. Sure. Um, Probably two, um, well, maybe three, I guess. There were three probably key events. Um, I'll bundle two together because the campaign kickoff event, which happened in um, 2015, it happened a week after um, a, a significant family event. And I probably needed it more personally for me than I could have ever imagined. But um, I had been uh, away from campus in the weeks that led up to it. And so I felt a little disconnected. And I actually just felt like my head wasn't in the right space. And I just remember getting in that room that night. And I thought, oh, all is well with the world. And I'm in the place I need to be. So there was that. And likewise, um, I will say that at the campaign finale, um, you, Brent, I, I know you met some of my colleagues, but um, Purdue probably had, had compiled one of the most sophisticated special events teams, I think, in the country. 
and our campaign finale, you know, we had uh, women hanging from tight ropes in the ceiling, pouring wine. It was, it was incredible. And um, it was a chance to put a big bow on something that I felt very personally proud of. So that was an important evening for me. Um, and then I'll just say, aside from that, when I think about 2.5 and, and where were some of my funnest memories, um, no surprise, I think, to the people that were there, um, truly um, giving day, my our, our day of giving at Purdue, we called it Purdue Day of Giving P-Dog. Um, we started it uh, in, you know, a lot of ways that people do, you know, not knowing what we we're doing, not sure if we could be successful. We turned it into an enterprise. Uh, the two individuals that were the architects for that are still at Purdue. They're incredibly talented. You know them well. Um, it was just, it was a ride. And it was, I remember every year when it was over after you'd been awake for 40 hours or whatever the number of hours was, you know, I remember coming home and, and being sad that it was over. And I thought, gosh, what's wrong with me? You know, I, I should be so excited that I don't have to do this again for 364 days. But it, it was something that I considered to be really special in my time there. Well, give us the headlines. When you think about Giving Day, I know that I have some stats here somewhere, uh, but they were big numbers. And I, I think um, we've also gotten to know some of the folks at NC State. I know that they've collaborated um, and tried to uh, and, and have successfully, um, you know, learned from that, um, that campaign model. Um, but what is it about that approach to Giving Day that is maybe different from the typical Giving Day results that we see, if you don't mind me asking? And Sure. You know, sharing the sharing the secrets. Uh, well, and so I, I when I left Purdue, I actually did a little bit of consulting with the University of Michigan Flint. If you go back and look, they had an incredible year last year. I'm really proud of them. Um, and what what really differentiates Giving Days is when you actually can bring the entire community together and the campus, the whole campus understands it's Giving Day. They're all in. People are paying attention. They've got it on their screen. They're watching it. You know, in the weeks leading up to it, everybody's social media feeds blowing up with all things related to your institution. And what really tips the scale is when you understand that there's going to be this component of work that happens online, but then there's going to be this real component of work that happens in the major gift space. And so when your major gift officers use that day as a way to close gifts and to provide them with that hard deadline, it's like the perfect storm. And so everything comes together. I, you know, I used to also, and this is a, a managing expectations uh, detail that I, I don't think any of us will ever uh, solve, but um, you know, at Purdue, when I worked there, Mitch Daniels would have always said, well, how much did we raise? And that would have been his measure for success for our giving day. And fortunately the number had always raised itself. So I was, I was thrilled it had grown and I was able to answer that question and he felt good about the number. But what I often reminded him and others was it was really less about the dollar and all about donor acquisition, because that's the key to why giving days are so important. If you can get people that who traditionally aren't giving any, you have to think about the avenues you use to solicit funds on those days. It's social media driven. So suddenly you're getting young people who aren't necessarily the typical donor at that point in their life. You're getting young people to give back. And if you can do that two and three years in a row, you've developed a trend in which they're going to most likely be annual donors. And I think that's the power of all these days. Yeah. It seems like um, instead of it being donors or dollars, you've been able and, and your team was able to do both in a way that um, really integrated major gifts into what sometimes could be that annual giving thing. And I think that's really the distinction uh, and others are trying to model it, but you know, sometimes, 
when you see the headlines of $41 million at Purdue, um, you know, relative to quite a bit less at other institutions, it just tells me that that uh, integration uh, and that deadline, as you described it, not to mention if something then pushes past giving day, you've still got until June 30th uh, for that fiscal year cycle to be able to bring things home. Exactly. And for people that watched um, Giving Days, I I'll say one of the call outs of, um, that I think speaks huge volumes for Giving Days is at, at Purdue, the work that the bands and orchestra have done. I mean, they're a small but powerful team, but they set the tone. Um, every campus needs one of those. I mean, they're always the ones that win as many competitions as possible. They strategize on how they can win the competitions. They are uber creative and they are all Thanksgiving Day. They are the they are the epitome of what makes Giving Day successful. Love it. I don't think I've heard that and uh, appreciate you sharing. <laughs> so uh, you had an amazing run at Purdue. You took some time. You did some consulting. Uh and you have now assumed the leadership role at a really pivotal and, and interesting time in the history of OU fundraising. Just tell me about the context, what inspired you to uh, pursue the opportunity, you know, what, whatever you're comfortable sharing uh, and, and kind of what you were excited about as you heard about the role. Yeah, so when I, um, when I stepped away from Purdue, I actually was contemplating retirement, um, just, wasn't exactly sure. And I was trying to imagine to myself, you know, can I enjoy this work in another environment and in a place in which I didn't graduate? Because it was hugely important to me to be able to raise money at my alma mater. Um, so I had a pretty long list of things that would need to happen to attract my attention. And um, oh, you really did check everything off the list. Minus, as my husband reminds me, the geography. We had agreed we would only move about six hours from our home. And if you get the map out, it was a steady 12. Um, but we made that move. Um, the things that really caught my attention uh, was the fact that the, um, the leadership at the university had made a decision to move the advancement organization to a private foundation, which I had also been involved with at uh, Purdue. And I support and believe in 100%. It's the right thing to do. And it was Why? for me in a previous life. And it Why was is right. that the right thing to do? Um, because advancement organizations, um, from my perspective, really don't look and feel and operate consistently like a lot of things that traditionally happen on an academic campus. So when you think about just basic fundamental things, like an advancement organization needs to be flexible, we need to be nimble, we need to be able to make quick hiring decisions, we need to be able to move people based on their skill set, based on their life situation. Uh, we need to be able to do our work under a little more transparent or a little more um, confidentiality, I should say, than what you typically can do on the public side uh, of an institution. And so it's just there's a lot of um, a lot of real flexibility to define the organization when you can pull away from the traditional model of a public higher education uh, facility. So I'm, that's why I'm a fan and I've seen it work. Um, it also allows you, I think, to uh, to come closer to honoring the wishes of your donors and really respecting the confidential nature of the work that happens. And I think that's an important component of it. So when I looked at OU, uh, there was uh, this move to a foundation. The university had just launched a strategic plan, which was incredibly powerful. And to be honest, and this was the thing that really struck me the most when I um, when I left Purdue, I had a couple people contact me about a couple jobs. 
in which the leader or the top person in the advancement organization left. And in most of these cases, the institutions were just hunkered down. We were in the throes of COVID and they were saying things like, well, we're gonna allow the advancement organization to be led temporarily by the IT person or by the person who is also serving in HR or whatever the case may be. And so essentially a lot of institutions saw COVID as a place in which they just kind of, they clammed up, you know, they, 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 um, they saw that as a threat or they saw that as a place where we're not willing to make a decision. We're not willing to make a commitment. We just need to ride the storm out. And actually the opposite happened here. I mean, OU, um, I don't know if they missed the pandemic message, but they just realized like, look, advance is super important. We really have to invest in it. We're really um, eager to find somebody to do a national search and to find somebody that can come here and lead this. And we know there's a pandemic, but it doesn't matter. We still need to do this. It's critically important. And so for me, that was a big draw. It speaks to the culture here. It speaks to the fact that they were not slowing down. They were not going to allow COVID to change their path. And um, it was the draw. And you arrived in uh, March of 2021. Is that right? Actually, it was April 1st. But yeah, April 1st. <laughs> April 1st. So, so we're a couple of months in. Um, you ha- have probably gone through this intensive. I mean, you've got to get to know your team, get to know the campus, get to know the culture, get to know the leaders, deans, the fight song. I mean, there's a lot that you need to get to know. Um, Where are you in that process? And how do you even think about the amount of learning that must be associated with um, such a big job in such a new context? Yeah, I will say that's the place I've underestimated. Um, Starting over someplace where you you just don't know so many things. It's hard. It's been, um, it's been eye-opening. It's been humbling. It's been daunting at times, but it's also fun. Um, You know, you didn't add to your list, but I'll add to the list. I won't disclose why it's so important, but I I had a a major silly question early on. Here at OU, you also need to know the history of football inside and out. And I'm working on that, but that's probably where I've been uh, the most lax. Um, But, you know, um, Brennan. Is there like a private football trivia coach that you can hire to help with these things? Or, or how do we uh, close that gap? Oh, I should for certain. Um, I ask a question of our president. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I ask a question of our president uh, who someone was, and it was a really famous football person. And he was like, you don't know? And I said, no, I have no idea. So it is funny. Football is a big thing, obviously, here. And um, everybody talks about it. So it's a part of the learning. But real, I mean, Real life is the the only way to do this is to just be here every day, to be in, you know, 11 and 12 hours a day, thinking about it, reading, uh, asking, um, trying to put yourself in every conversation you possibly can. And I leave a lot of conversations with little notes of like, I've got to Google this and I've got to Google that. and I've got to figure out who this is. And I suspect in two years, I might get past some of these little notes, but there's just a lot to learn in an institution of this size. And I guess it also is just a balance of, acknowledging you're probably never going to be the expert on all things OU, right? You're never going to know all of the famous names and places. It's it's hard, even if you are a part of a place for 20 years to know all of that. Exactly. And so it probably just shapes a little bit around 
you know, there are probably certain things at OU that you wouldn't get in the weeds on that maybe you would have gotten the weeds on at Purdue because you were so intimately connected with, with so much of the history and, and, and traditions. And so, I don't know, maybe that's just a different, uh, different requirement, right? I mean, maybe it's just a different, like there, there can be benefits to having that deep knowledge, but I think um, there's obviously, you know, the broader transparency, leadership, communication, no matter who the football stars are, uh, we've got to be able to set some strategies and build culture and execute. Yeah, I've, I've decided, um, and I joked when the president was teasing me about not knowing this individual, I said, you know, I'm really focused on learning my staff um, and learning our um, key stakeholders. And um, so I'll get there, I'll get to the football coaches, but I'm just not there yet, you know? So, um, you know, it's a, a little bit of it for me. One of the things that I, um, I made a priority when I, I, I accepted this assignment was that I was going to uh, meet with everybody on my team individually for 30 minutes. Um, and it took about a month to get through everybody. And it, um, it took a little bit of scheduling uh, creativity, but it was worth it. It was important. I wanted to know where people were from, you know, what their connection to the university had been. And it really, uh, um, I hope, I hope they understand that I, I did it for maybe selfish reasons, but really because I do want to have a team in which I feel connection. I love that. Any, uh, I don't know, just reflections on that whole process. Sounds like you could have started a podcast uh, with yeah. uh, all those conversations. Fun, Actually, um, I said something the other day to somebody about someone and they were like, how would you know that? And I go, well, they just told me that and they didn't act like it was a secret. So, um, you know, it was fun. There was a common theme. Uh, people love this place. People that are here love this place. Um, there's so many of our um, employees and so many on our team personally that uh, went to OU and uh, graduated from OU and just could have been anywhere and wanted to be here. I'm also struck by how many young alums, you know, uh, alums that would graduate and immediately start working at the university. There's, there's a lot. And in fact, our team is made up of a lot of those individuals. We asked you uh, before the conversation today where the sector's over uh, investing or under investing. Uh, and you just commented that you thought there were significant opportunities to invest in training and professional development. And I'm curious what made you respond that way and, and how you think about making some of those investments um, as you get to know your team and, and as you uh, you know, I know you're recruiting right now. I actually saw quite a few positions posted, which is great to see after a year of freezes and furloughs and, and, and all that. So, you know, tell me a little bit just about your perspective on training and development and um, your hiring plans. Sure. So for me, um, I just think training and development is so important. I've seen um, and heard of some really good and talented individuals who um, didn't stay in the profession because they they, they doubted themselves. You know, I, I mentioned earlier a little bit about self-doubt and how you can let that creep in. And this work is hard. Um, it's not a job where you go home and you turn it off. You're always thinking about it. You, you, you think about it at all kinds of times of the day. And you're always wondering what you could do to make another connection or to reach out to someone else or to close an important gift. And so I do think it's really, really important to pour into people um, and to invest because what I always say is I want my investment as a manager to equal my investment into my employees to equal what I'm asking them to invest in the job. And I think we're asking a lot of them. 
Um, we ask them to, to be available. I, I, if I, if you email people at night, they email you back or they're on the road on a Sunday night or on a Thursday night at, you know, 10 at night. So I just think it's really critically important to invest in people. And, um, and that looks and feels differently to everybody. You know, what's important to some people is not as important to others, but there are things that you can do. And I think it's always good to kind of understand, you know, what those different opportunities look and feel like for some individuals. Um, you know, there are some people that love and really benefit from going to conferences and or uh, professional training. And then there are other people that have a different mechanism or an approach to what they would like to see in training. So I just think it's important uh, to identify and create a platform of development opportunities and um, training opportunities that can align with a, a lot of different employees. It's not a one size fits all for me. So I do think it's important. And um, it's also, I think in this profession where it's very competitive and people are always being recruited away to other jobs, I think it is something that you can point to to say, this is what makes OU special. Um, we're going to invest in you and we're going to make it possible for you to be successful. And we hope that will be different than what you might see in an opportunity outside of the university. Well um, yeah, but I cannot miss the opportunity. As you said, we are hiring. <laughs> we're hiring. Uh, we have probably 50 positions available right now. And uh, 50 people. We've been doing a lot of episodes. We got 50 positions at OU. Exactly. Um, some are entry level. Um, we have, we're looking for folks in prospect research. We're looking for folks in development services. We're looking for fundraisers. We're looking for people in corporate and foundation relations, thing giving. I mean, really, we are all across the board. And um, I say to everybody, you know, um, Oklahoma is a pretty special place. I was surprised because I was born and raised in Indiana, but it's been a place I've fallen in love with quickly. And if you want to come somewhere and you want to be a part of something really exciting, we're getting ready to announce something really big in the next 18 months. So if you want to be a part of something really exciting and you want to work with a team and you want to have a lot of fun, this is the place. I love it. That is what I'm talking about. No more furloughs. No 50 more furloughs. <laughs> new hires. I love it. Um, so as we conclude here, um, I, I do want to... Uh, maybe just ask you this. Two years ago in June, Zoom was not a big part of our life. Okay. Mm -hmm. A year ago, it was a huge part of our life. What about a year from now? It's probably somewhere in between. You know, I think what it's done for us in a very positive way is it has allowed us to realize that we can function as a society in ways that we hadn't before. Um, and it's opened our mind and opened our possibilities of new and different ways in which we can behave and work and educate ourselves and do all kinds of things. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. I think that it, I'm sorry it took a pandemic to help us get there, but I think that's a win. Um, but the flip of it is, um, I think that the pandemic took a toll on a lot of people. Um, people in this day and age are a lot more social than they want to give themselves credit for. Um, you know, I heard people that tired of being on the phone or people that tired of being, you know, plugged into their, uh, their iPad or their, or their desktop, um, you know, because people really do need and crave what you can only get in face-to-face -face and real interactions. And so in a business that is so deeply rooted in relationships, 
Um, I think it will have changed us a little bit, but I hope that we find ourselves back into that space in which we're really sitting across the table talking to people on a regular basis about why they should make a gift to the University of Oklahoma. Yeah, look, I think uh, it is critical. And just, you know, yesterday, actually, we reopened our office at Evertrue, and I got to see some folks uh, on our team who I'd never met in person before. Uh, I, I got to reconnect with people who I've known for years. And it was really, uh, it was really special. But at the same time, I know that we don't necessarily need that to be the exact same way it was before the pandemic. And not you know continue to make progress and and grow and all of that so it i i think your comments around the the hybrid or the balance uh it, you know are 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 accurate I, I also think from a fundraising perspective which we've talked a lot about is given that a whole i mean all of us from the ages of three to 93 have been accustomed to now be a zoom link away from one another and i'm hopeful that uh, especially from a discovery perspective and as we think about ways to engage more donors earlier in their life cycle, that there is a lot of space between, you know, student caller making a relatively transactional solicitation and fundraiser getting on a plane and flying to XYZ city to do a discovery visit. And I think the in-between is, is going to continue to be a big area of opportunity coming out of pandemic. I agree. I really do. And I think the biggest thing that for me post pandemic is, um, I can probably tolerate some Zoom. I hope we don't go back to mask. And really, it's all selfish. I just, I want to know when people are smiling. And I think a lot of people smile and I think there's value in it. And it does a lot of things subconsciously to make people happier. And so not seeing smiles for the last 18 months has been the hardest part for me, so. Well, here's to seeing a lot of smiles in the next 18 months. And uh, Amy, it's uh, really just been so fun to reconnect and learn more about your journey and it's a big job and it sounds like you've got incredible support from the leadership of the institution to be able to have a hiring plan like that uh, at a time when many uh, folks are still maybe playing a little bit of defense. So uh, best wishes and if people wanna stay in touch, LinkedIn, is that the best way to reach out to you or any other uh, medium you'd recommend? Absolutely, um, I am on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, but not as actively. And my email is super simple, anoa at ou.edu. Please reach out. I would love to hear from anyone. Please do, everyone. Take Amy up on it. She's a great leader in the space, and I really appreciate you taking time to share with our audience. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Frank. Great to see you. All right. Thanks, Ever Amy. True. Take care. Bye-bye. Never true.